Just a quick message before the episode gets underway. The Aurora Renewables Summit London is returning on the afternoon of Wednesday the 26th of June. Book your ticket now to hear from leading experts in the energy industry as they assess the opportunities and challenges within the UK and the wider European renewable sector. You will also benefit from unparalleled networking opportunities. We look forward to seeing you there. There's sort of a contradictory trend in the market. There's more and more projects coming online, but equally more and more money competing for green investments and driving down pricing. And that's creating a bit of a a green bubble where the perceived risk return is slightly skewed, particularly on the equity side. But, But what we have today is just a drop in the ocean, of course. We need to grow exponentially in renewables if we're to achieve net zero by 2050. The problem here is that although debt and equity investors have strong appetite and plenty of dry powder for clean energy investments, they won't set that capital to work unless they can make a fair return on their investment. The financial markets are not charities, which means the economics of future investments have to remain attractive. So the question is, how will that be enabled? Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged, a podcast by Aurora Energy Research. I'm Alexander Esser and I've been with Aurora for five years and lead our expansion into the Nordics. Today, I'm extremely excited about speaking with our guest, who is Executive Director for Renewables Project Financing at one of the earliest project finances for offshore wind and one of the most active debt providers for renewables and sustainable business in Europe. My guest on the show is Lisa McDermott from the Dutch bank ABN AMRO. Welcome, Lisa. Hello, Alexander, and thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So let me briefly summarize your professional journey. I think it's a very diverse one. You hold a first-class degree in law and French from Queen's University, Belfast, and you're an English qualified solicitor. You started your career as a lawyer at Clifford Chance, specializing in tax, M&A, and fund structuring. Since 2004, you held a number of senior origination, structuring, and management roles within various structured finance disciplines. Now you told me earlier that structured finance for renewables is your fourth career. How did your journey evolve? What was the common thread? Yes, I I guess it does sometimes feel like I've had a few different careers before this one. Uh, As you get older, you only tend to talk about your current role, though. Um, I think for me, the common thread of my career choice can probably be traced back to what I would call uh, career zero, which is actually as a languages teacher. It's one that you didn't mention Um, As a teenager, I was always fascinated by learning languages and the etymology of language. And for me, it was a natural combination with uh, science and maths, which I was always uh, also very drawn to. I guess I saw language as a kind of science, a form of learning based on applied logic. And that type of subject matter appealed to me as I'm fairly analytical in nature and I've always loved solving problems and learning new things. So, yeah, although I didn't have a classic arts background uh, of a law student, I did choose to study law and I combined it with a degree in French. And during my studies, I then traveled around various places in the world, teaching French and English and learning some other languages along the way. And I call it career zero because I actually continued doing that for a couple of years in parallel to training as a solicitor to for chance. 
Um, magic circles didn't pay quite so well in those days as they do now. Um, I subsequently qualified as a tax lawyer, and again, that appealed to me as it was very technical, but also required quite a broad underlying knowledge of all the different types of transactions you needed to analyze from a tax perspective. And then I was about six or seven years into my career at Clifford Chance when I felt a strong urge to move to the other side of the table to do my own deals as a principal. And I was very lucky to get a fantastic chance to become part of a front office structured finance team at the German bank West LB and thereafter at the Japanese bank Nomura. And then in 2010, just after the financial crisis, my career took another change of direction and I relocated from London to the Netherlands and ran a securitization team at a large trust provider for three years before ending up at my current role at ABN AMRO in 2013. But to be perfectly honest, <laughs> I didn't go into either project financing or the renewables industry by design. I also can't claim to be uh, an ardent greenie, or at least not before I, I started working in this sector. However, I will confess it was rather love at first sight. Uh, it ticks a great many of my boxes. And I think I'll stay involved in this sector in some way for the rest of my career. There's just so much happening and so much to learn. For me, it's it's truly impossible to ever get bored. Yeah, I understand. So so was there a specific person that inspired you during your earlier career? Or was there someone that led you eventually into the topic of energy? Inspiration, that's a tough one. I've had the pleasure of working with very many talented people, of course, that I learned a lot from and, and who always motivated me to give my best. Um, I've always been personally inspired by people who really master their area of expertise, but who also manage to act with integrity. Financial markets are intrinsically driven by profit and there's constant pressure to get ahead. So those that can rise to the top while keeping their integrity intact are strong role models for me. But if I'm very honest, the two most formative influences during my career were, in retrospect, probably my mother and father. That it's not a very cool thing to admit. And they're also pretty unlikely role models for the career path I took, as my mother was a housewife. My father worked in a shipyard, but but it is true. With my mum, despite the fact she didn't have a, a professional career of her own, constantly reinforced in me and my sister that anything a man can do a woman also can. And that seems so obvious to say these days, but it's not, as we still have a fair degree of unconscious bias floating around in society. I actually recently deliberately asked one of my sons, um, can you think of a job that a man can do but a woman can't? And when he answered, being a soldier, you can just imagine the conversation that followed. So my mum's message was a simple one, but it was one that I always kept in mind over the years. And as to my father, uh, he was very academic at school, but unfortunately he was all, also the oldest boy of a family of many children. So he had to go out to work at 16. He started in manual work, but over time worked his way right up into top management when in his own words, he realized he could do a better job than those above him. But he said something to me um, on the morning I headed off to London to start my professional career, which has always stuck with me. He said, never underestimate yourself but also never overestimate yourself. Now, most people never add that second part, but the combination is actually very, very good advice. It, it kind of helps you to keep it real and to keep working hard, no matter how far you've progressed in your career. Um, my upbringing in Northern Ireland was also quite far from privileged, I would say. Uh, it was slap bang in the middle of the troubles, and I was one of only a handful of Catholics at a very Protestant grammar school. 
But if anything, it taught me to be resilient. And frankly, that's one of the best career skills anyone can have. If you add hard work and curiosity into the mix, I, I believe most people can do anything they put their mind to. Yeah, and I must say, I think it's really cool that uh, you you admit uh, your parents being the role models there and uh, pay pay tribute to them uh, on this on this answer. Um, but today we'd like uh, to talk about energy, and uh, you've been at the Dutch bank ABN Amro now for eight years. So I'd be interested to understand what's ABN Amro's role in financing actually the energy transition. Now at ABN Amro, we have a strong focus on a number of transitions. So not only the energy transition, but also digitalization and mobility and logistics. And those three transitions complement each other very well as well as representing what we see as three of the biggest megatrends today. There are many overlaps and synergies between them. But regarding energy transition, I would say our strategy at ABN AMRO is an inclusive one. We don't exclusively target dark green investments, also shades of green. And that extends to our fossil client base who are now in transition to cleaner business models. We have a very strong sustainability advisory and also debt teams, and we deploy that expertise widely to assist those clients in their transitions. Of course, we, we still assess clients and transactions against our own fairly stringent sustainability policy. We apply our own internal sustainability taxonomy, but essentially we believe we can have more impact in the energy transition by getting involved in a more inclusive way. So within energy transition, you will see us active not only on all sorts of renewables technologies, but also in transition fuels and emerging technologies, for instance, LNG, sustainable fuels, emission reduction technologies, biochemicals, recycling, etc. That's very interesting. I think we, we should definitely come uh, back to some of those transitional technologies or also the technologies for the, for the next step of the energy transition in a bit. But for now, I'd like to focus on uh, renewables, project finance of renewables, because I hear quite a few opposing trends here. So often when we talk to banks, we hear about that margins are being squeezed, that they are very low at the moment. On the opposite, I hear that globally, the capacity additions of renewables have become really high with 160 gigawatts per year to so are doubled in the last five years. So how, how do those opposing trends fit together? Yes, well, there is a staggering amount of activity in this space right now that the sector just seems to have exploded with innovation activity over the last few years. You're right, though, that there, there's sort of a contradictory trend in the market. There's more and more projects coming online but equally more and more money competing for green investments and driving down pricing. And that's creating a bit of a, a green bubble where the perceived risk return is slightly skewed, particularly on the equity side. But, but what we have today is just a drop in the ocean, of course. We need to grow exponentially in renewables if we we're to achieve net zero by 2050. The problem here is that although debt and equity investors have strong appetite and plenty of dry powder for clean energy investments, they won't set that capital to work unless they can make a fair return on their investment. The financial markets are not charities, which means the economics of future investments have to remain attractive. So the question is, how will that be enabled? I think for, for certain very mature technologies with dropping LCOEs and well-established renewable jurisdictions, leaving the financing of those to the private market might work. However, to get to carbon neutrality by 2050, we will require the engagement of the entire EU27 block, some of whom are, are really just at the start of their renewables journey. 
the management of a huge paradigm shift on, on integrating a high percentage of renewables on the grid and also the development of a low carbon fuel economy. And those aspects will not be delivered by entirely free markets. We, we definitely need policy intervention and frankly, um, quite a lot of financial support to achieve that. People generally don't like the word subsidy, but let's face it, neither the oil and gas industry nor the offshore wind industry would have got to the point where they are today without substantial subsidies to get them up and running. And as to how much subsidization will be needed to achieve the EU Green Deal, well, frankly, the answer is as much as it takes. Ursula von der Leyen used the metaphor of a man on the moon moment to announce the EU Green Deal. Well, Clearly, the US didn't get a man on the moon simply by announcing its ambition to do so. The task was enormous, very time consuming and very costly. I believe the equivalent of, of 300 billion US dollars in today's money. So the jury's still out on how much stopping climate change is going to cost. Uh, but ironically, the, the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research stated that saving the Earth won't cost the moon whereas the UN has predicted a cost of $300 billion, exactly the same figure as the cost of the US Apollo 11 mission. Whatever the figure, it's clear that not addressing climate change would cost us more in the long term. In terms of renewables, we should think of it as, as actually rather akin to a space rocket in the sense that most of the fueling is required at the outset to enable it to gain sufficient speed to get into orbit. And from there, it should be perfectly able to propel forward simply using its own momentum. And are renewables now now ready to propel forward? So uh, have we finalized this transition from subsidy-free or from subsidies to subsidy-free renewables? No, I mean, not quite. We mentioned, obviously, there are certain markets that are achieving grid parity and renewables has done a fantastic job in in certain parts of the world and getting the cost down. But as I said, the, the enormity of the build out, which is required to deliver something like the EU Green Deal, will mean that we're going to rely upon subsidies um, for the foreseeable future in some aspects of that market. Yeah, yeah. And for, for me, one of the key questions is there always, when we see, at least in Europe, that uh, subsidies are going down and also banks feel more comfortable in taking more merchant risk there uh, or feel more comfortable to also provide debt for, for projects backed by PPAs. But what can a state actually do in a, as, as, as subsidies are fees facing, being phased out, what could a state do to improve the financeability of renewables? What do you, what do you have in mind? Um, yeah, I mean, subsidies and LCOEs are definitely coming down, but th that doesn't mean we don't need government intervention. Um, in an open market, you can rely on price, of course, and convenience to shape behaviour, but unfortunately, energy cannot be a fully open market if we want to compel a move away from fossil fuels. We need regulation and taxation by government, and government is the body who needs to act in the public interest, which, of course, in this case, is to decarbonise. So... I think we need gov continued government invention targeted at two different aims. The first is to, to subsidize the scale up of industries, which we know we need, but we can't achieve that scale on its own. For instance, the electrolyzer market, and that might be CapEx or OPEX subsidies or both, but I believe, to be honest, only OPEX subsidies are needed, just like for the renewable sector to date, if revenue security can be guaranteed at the right level, then the capital to finance these things will come. 
And secondly, um, interventions definitely still needed to influence market behavior. Um, you may collect some money in the process, which can be recycled to support the green economy, but the main driver is, is behavioral change. And now the options are taxing the emitter, taxing the user of carbon uh, to, to ensure that buying fossil um, you know, is more expensive than buying green. Or thirdly, compelling a user to buy a percentage of green, like a percentage of green electricity, and interestingly, that last mechanism is not used at present in the markets, but it's definitely the, the most helpful thing in improving the finance case for subsidy-free renewables. So I understand the environment for project finance is really changing. So, so what is the strategy of ABN Amrut towards this changing environment? Yeah, well, you know, renewables were starting to get a bit predictable there for a bit. So I guess we needed a few additional challenges to shake up the market. Um, and two, two of the biggest ones we're being confronted with are probably the advent of, of Basel IV uh, and merchant renewables financing. Um, maybe, maybe first on Basel IV, or, or rather the latest reform of Basel III, uh, this uh, changes the whole risk-weighted capital framework for all risk types, notably by introducing capital floors. And as you can imagine, this results in the amount of risk-weighted capital required to be held by banks only moving in one direction, which is upwards. So it presents a huge challenge for the financial industry in years to come. Um, I think I expect to see three changes of behavior probably in banks in response to this, including ABN AMRO. And the first is that where possible, banks will try to continue lending if it's economic to do so. That's how they make their money. Uh, but they'll also try and take advantage of any supporting factors which are available. <clears throat> for example, there, uh, there's an infrastructure support factor which adjusts the capital requirement downwards um, where that concerns bank lending to essential public services. And the EU Commission is also considering a green supporting factor. But secondly, I think we can expect banks to reduce the deployment of their own balance sheet and, or start deploying that in a more capital efficient way, for instance, focusing on originate to distribute models or only financing the construction stage of projects. Thirdly, then, the logical consequence of that is um, new sources of capital need to come into these markets to support long-term financing once a project has been de-risked. And for the newly introduced uh, category of specialised lending under Basel IV, which includes project finance, um, there's a much more beneficial treatment if there's a credit rating on the debt. Currently, we see institutional debt investors in renewables markets, but that only represents a very small percentage of overall lending, and, and most of that's still via unrated debt. So I think that really has to change we need to convert more renewables assets into rated debt investments to entice bond investors into the sector more and also improve the capital treatment for, for all investors subject to prudential regulation. But this will probably come at a price, which is a more conservative debt structure to support that rating. And on merchant risk, of course, this is the big question uh, now in the market for renewables financing. Um, we've been financing subsidy-free renewables for the past couple of years, but for long-term financing, we've only been doing that when the par price is, is hedged to a certain extent via a form of fixed-price PPA. But since COVID hit, we've been we've seen the ask for long-term unhedged, fully merchant financing really increasing. In most cases, this is due to you know pressure on equity returns and, and sponsors not really being keen to accept the discount on market prices which riding a hedge involves. But although we understand the rationale, I, I think it's a bit of a, an unfair ask on banks for a couple of reasons. Um, first, sponsors are typically seeking similar levels of leverage for fully merchant projects. 
and that puts um, that puts far too much merchant risk on banks, whereby it becomes actually the single largest risk in the entire debt structure. And that should not be the case. I mean, lenders are not the best party to predict and bear the risk of power prices, in particular capture prices, 10, 20 years into the future. And secondly, there actually there's no other part of the infrastructure market I'm aware of where lenders finance long term on a non-recourse basis with absolutely no contracts supporting the cash flows. Other infrastructure sectors, which are merchant or or only contract on a short-term basis, um, typically only attract short or medium-term financing, and then they accept that they have to refinance frequently during the course of the asset life. So why should it be different for fully merchant renewables? You, you mentioned that Basel IV comes actually at a cost. So would that mean um, that uh, cost of capital would also increase for, for developers? I think it will ultimately, and and it can come in two ways. Either the banks continue to finance, but they will be subject to higher risk-weighted capital requirements, which will drive pricing upwards. Or we, as I say, we turn these investments into rated paper, um, which actually lowers the pricing because you're getting a higher rating on the debt, but then your leverage is going to have to decrease to get a more conservative debt structure. So ultimately, there is a bit of pain coming in, but but in a different way. So now I'd like to focus a bit on what's next. And you mentioned it several times already that uh, uh, also ABN AMRO wants not only to focus on renewables, also on technologies, other low carbon technologies that will be required on the pathway to net zero. So do you think project finance will also be a theme for such technologies? So for example, electrolyzers? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the market is already project financing much more than wind and solar, of course. In our own portfolio, we have geothermal, hydro, energy from waste, smart meters. Uh, some battery deals are also starting to attract some uh, levels of leverage and biofuels are coming higher and higher on the agenda. But as for the project financing of electrolyzers, yeah, absolutely, these will be project financed. I mean, they, they simply need to be in order to scale up to the levels envisaged in the EU hydrogen strategy. We have to get to, I think, 40 gigawatts by 2030. So definitely project finance will be needed. Mm. But uh, is it already the case now or is this technology so uh, immature still that it's mostly being um, financed by the balance sheets from, from the big utilities or oil and gas majors? I would say most of the projects are in demo phase at the moment still, and, and therefore it's it's mainly balance sheet financing. But we're starting to have conversations with, with certain parties about how, how to adapt those structures to project financing mm. when for when they scale up. Uh, how does it look like with the risk profile? I imagine this is even more complex for green hydrogen, so for electrolyzers, as you have a merchant exposure on both sides. On one hand, you buy power uh, from, a, from the grid, so via PPA, so uh, on the input side. On the other hand, uh, you, you sell the hydrogen uh, to, to industry or another off-taker. So will you require a security on both sides? So on, on the power side, maybe a PPA, and on, on the output side, a off-take agreement for the hydrogen to allow those projects to become um, um, uh, available for project finance? To be honest, pretty much all technologies have merchant risk um, occurring naturally in both sides of the equation. It's just that the regulation or market practice has evolved in many cases to mitigate or re remove those risks. For example, feed-in tariffs, long-term fixed-price PPAs. But, but equally, look at the regulated asset-based model for TSOs. 
or, or OFTOs or heat networks or availability-based model for PPPs. So essentially, we look at the project financing of electrolyzers in the same way as any other project financing. Yes, due to the huge electricity volumes needed to power electrolyzers, this power needs to be purchased largely on a long-term fixed price basis to avoid too much fluctuation in OPEX. And for grid-connected electrolyzers, this will also mean securing the requisite green certificates on a long-term basis as well. On the offtake side, uh, we will also need a long-term hydrogen purchase agreement. Here, the barrier to project financing I most commonly hear mentioned is that there is no market for green hydrogen. That's correct, but there is a market for hydrogen and a huge one at that. And if we compare this to the power market, there's also not really a market for green power. It's, it's just power. Some buyers want to show that they're buying green, but they're not actually paying a green premium for that power. So ultimately, we come back to requiring the same solution that was deployed in the renewables market so it could achieve something close to price parity. And that is a structural OPEX subsidy to support the development of the green hydrogen economy until electrolyzer costs come down sufficiently to, to move towards a tender model. And after all, competition via tenders is what really forced the price of offshore wind down once that value chain had been scaled up. In fact, the, the Dutch government's already considering combined offshore wind and electrolyzer tenders, but uh, the electrolyzer part of that would definitely have to be subsidized. An alternative could be a requirement to use a certain percentage of green hydrogen, sort of akin to sustainable fuel blending mandate for the airline industry we think might be coming from Europe shortly. But that would, of course, is tricky as long as we don't have enough green hydrogen volumes. So that really means we need subsidies to build out a green hydrogen economy. The question is how we can use those subsidies to maximum effect. And in other words, how we can get the greatest bang for our buck. And there, I think we would need to be really disciplined and save green hydrogen for, firstly, direct replacement of grey hydrogen, where that's going to be needed on an ongoing basis. Uh, Fertiliser, steel, refining, depending on how oil usage develops. And thereafter, only when there's no cheaper or more efficient solution to decarbonize. But so that's on the offtake side. But the less predictable part of the green hydrogen equation for me is actually the price of renewable power and whether we're going to see low enough price levels to get to price parity on green hydrogen, bearing in mind we need to keep renewables generation economically attractive as well as a standalone investment. And that's maybe where the, the import case for green hydrogen may become important from, from countries with stronger renewables resources, leading to a lower overall levelized cost of hydrogen. I think that's that's very relevant to I mean, two points, especially that on one hand we we need some subsidies in hydrogen to to get the whole economy going, and uh, the regulator has to make sure that we focus that hydrogen goes into the right processes into the right industries. Uh, therefore, I also think, for example, that the German proposal is quite interesting in this respect, not to directly subsidize uh, the production of green hydrogen, but to uh, support and incentivize industry, uh, the relevant industry, to take it off by those carbon CFDs. That could be a way of uh, also assuring uh, a long-term offtake agreement and uh, supporting the, the financeability of, of uh, green hydrogen, I think. Absolutely. Are there any other um, technologies um, on the way to, to uh, net zero where you put the focus on apart from uh, electrolysis? Well, I think uh, sustainable fuels is certainly high up on the agenda, as I said, focusing quite a bit of attention at the moment on sustainable aircraft fuel. So obviously in the transportation sector, um, hydrogen is often cited as you know the only 
potential uh, alternative to electrification for decarbonisation, but we think there's a very strong case for sustainable fuels to compete. And that, that's mainly just, you know, because uh, these fuels can be blended straight into systems. So there's no, you know, reconfiguration to get a hydrogen propulsion system going. That's one we're focusing on quite heavily at the moment as well. Yeah. Uh, now, coming to our last section um, that we often have uh, in our podcast called overrated or underrated. And I don't want to miss the opportunity to ask you on a few concepts within the energy transition, especially with regard to financing the energy transition. So I'll ask you what you think uh, if those concepts are overrated or underrated. So the first one is ESG investments. Do you think this concept is overrated or underrated? I would say underrated. It may sound like a bit of an overused term these days, but we always see it as a great way for companies to move from ambition to condition. You put conditionality in your loan documentation and that acts as a, an incentive to actually achieve that. So it's a lot stronger than a pure ambition. Okay, next one. Green bonds related to renewables investments. Overrated or underrated? You mean direct use of proceeds where the assets clearly green, I think. Um, I would say a bit overrated because, yeah, if the, if the asset is, is very clearly green, then, yeah, why bother getting a green stamp? Yeah, another one about a green stamp. Guarantees of origin for green power. This one is underrated in my view. It's going to become increasingly important for traceability, particularly when we, we move from just renewables into the whole hydrogen, hydrogen economy. Now, and we discussed it in length, project finance for electrolyzers. Overrated or underrated? Well, I'd have to say underrated. <laughs> and the last one, and we also touched upon that, hydrogen as a transport fuel. That one, it's possible, of course, but I would say at the moment, it's pretty overrated. And might be required later on in the energy transition for for the transport modes that are not so easily electrifiable. Correct. But I think at the moment, I think before that, we've got bigger fish to fry with, with our precious green hydrogen. Perfect. Yeah. Now is a natural time actually to finish. Uh, we'll be watching your progress and especially... Uh, your approach and on financing the next generation of technologies on the pathway to net zero. I think especially uh, with regards to electrolysis, you'll be laying the foundation for, for the next decade. Uh, so that's going to be very interesting. And Lisa, I want to thank you very much for this conversation. Uh, I enjoyed it very much and uh, talk to you soon. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. That was Alexander Esser, who leads Aurora's expansion into the Nordics, talking to Lisa McDermott, Executive Director for Renewables Project Financing at ABN AMRO. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>